because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. Father, thank you for your inspired word. Thank you that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words centuries ago is the same Holy Spirit who resides in the hearts of believers and the Spirit who this morning uh, I'm depending upon to speak your truth. So take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and make them acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength, my redeemer. Amen. So our, our text this morning reports for us a court case that is brought by God. He ultimately is the judge of all. In this situation, he's judge and apparently prosecuting attorney as he brings the indictment, a very stern indictment without any hint of grace or mercy or pity at all. In fact, it corresponds with the name that was given to Hosea's second child, uh, Lo Ruhamah, which means without compassion or without mercy or pity. And this indictment depicts an Israel that is void of any kind of moral uprightness at all or spiritual genuineness. The nation is so very defiled, not even a hint that they know God at all. And these are the God who, these are the people who have been called by the covenant God to be uniquely his people. Stated positively, had there been the knowledge of God, there would not have been this stinging indictment raised against the covenant people. So I want us to observe in the text some things related to the knowledge of God. The first thing is this. The knowledge of God had been received by his people. A preacher and a commentator like John Lloyd Ogilvy says that the theme of Hosea, and I think he's coined it beautifully, is unbroken love from a broken heart. Now, if that's true, and I believe that is a good way to describe Hosea, then I believe that the knowledge of God is the sub-theme. It's the underlying sub-theme of the book of Hosea. But just what is it to know the Lord? Let us consider the nature of the knowledge of God. So the context of our text here in Hosea 1 through 4, chapter 4, 1 through 6, points up the failure of the priest to teach the objective truth of the Torah. The priests have failed miserably. He talks about false priests and false prophets in the text that we read. So there is the question of orthodoxy or right belief. And it's important that people be taught correctly the things that relate to God. So it was a matter of the Torah not being taught from generation to generation. But alongside that, <clears throat> excuse me, the practice of the Torah, <clears throat> orthodoxy needs to be matched by orthopraxy, the practice of right doctrine. Now the failure to do that is intolerable. 
and it's damning. Hosea warns of the practice of empty ritualism where you talk about God and you go through the rituals related to the worship of God and it's just a routine that one engages in. So much so that the theme verse, I think, of Hosea chapter six, verse number six, is gonna remind us that he's not as much concerned about burnt offerings and sacrifices as he is concerned about the knowledge of God. So in Hosea's time, as well as that of Amos, uh, there, there is a general practice amongst the people of God to go to the worship shrines and to bring the sacrificial animals. Amos would go so far as to say, and uh, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to the holy place and rebel against God. Come to Gilgal and multiply your transgression. So it's not a, not a matter of their not being uh, regular in their attendance at the shrines and consistent in their offering of sacrifices, but there was no heart, no devotion, no life in their knowledge of God. There had been a time when they had walked with God. It had been received by his people. From the founding of Israel as God's chosen people, God emphasized that the relationships based upon his people knowing him. For example, Genesis 12, the call of Abram. God said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises that Israel has a unique identity. They are the people who know God and receive the benefits of knowing him. However, it's not a name it and claim it kind of arrangement as if we could manipulate God and have it our way. Chuck Smith had pointed out some of the advantages or the blessings that come to people or nations that know the Lord. Smith says, quote, being the people of God has great advantages. You have special privileges. <clears throat> and then he points out some of them. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. This is the heritage of the people of God. Rain in due season, the land shall yield or increase, the trees their fruit. Peace in the land, you'll lie down, and none will make you afraid. God said that he would chase their enemies. God said that he would walk among them. These are some of the blessings, the benefits of knowing God. Well, when we consider what Chuck Smith said, it sounds like living in a kind of a blessed cocoon of bliss, immune to the challenges of living in the real world. No, actually it's descriptive of living in fellowship with God, of knowing him. He then is our defender so that in him we find security, we find a relationship that comes only from those who know the Lord. We're a part of the family who know him. Now, after settling into Canaan, those who knew the Lord, the Old Testament era, the ones called out, uh, one could engage in a lengthy reciting of the mighty acts of God, and we could go on and on. But just 
Think about Gideon, for example, God's amazing intervention, slaying of the huge number of enemy soldiers with just a few Israelis involved. Think of David, the stones, the sling, and the giant falling. Uh, we think of the thrills of the glory days during the monarchy under David and Solomon. God's blessings were abundant, but they were contingent upon their faithful experience of knowing him or walking with him. Now, this knowledge of God, as we've said, is the distinguishing mark of God's chosen people. None of the pagan gods, whether carved figurines or the figments of their imaginations, None of them were like the mighty God of Israel, who would later incarnate himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and became even more knowable. So the first thing regarding the knowledge of God, I repeat, is that that knowledge can be received. It was by the people that he called out to be his own and they entered into a relationship with him where they walked with him and knew him. And then as we've intimated a moment ago, the knowledge of God can be rejected by his people. The very covenant people whom God had chosen and blessed became wayward and adapted to the culture around them. We're talking about this in, in class a moment ago. How, how could it possibly be that we are so prone to wonder to leave the God we love after we see God doing amazing things for us, blessing us in such amazing ways, and then if we're not careful, we adapt to the culture around us and get away from the intimacy of knowing him. So they often rejected God then, and we often reject God now, unfortunately, having known him and walked with him. Satan strives to rob the follower of God of that life of victory and joy. Now, during the monarchy, as we mentioned, leaders such as Saul, David, Solomon sometimes walked with the Lord they experienced the devotional knowledge of walking with him. But when they turned away from that, they reaped untold misery. It's what Abraham Heschel in his book, The Prophets, talks about. We have a perfect God. The scriptures declare that. Our experience declares that. There's no imperfection about him at all. But Heschel talks about the tension of God. And we see it in Hosea in a profound way. Here is God whose love is absolutely beyond uh, our imagination. A God who is perfect love. And yet the God who, when that love is rejected, responds in anger and wrath. The tension that exists in the, in, in the heart of God. You say, well... If he's perfect, how could that be? Well, if he's perfect, how can we grieve the Holy Spirit? He is sensitive. He hurts. He takes on some of our human, though he's, he's totally divine while totally human in Christ, uh, he takes upon some of our own uh, sensitivities 
he is personality. He loves. He hurts. He grieves. And so when we fail to know him as we should walk with him in that kind of harmony, um, his wrath can be unleashed against the people he loves. So when God's knowledge was rejected, you're destroyed for lack of it, he told them, and they were away from their covenant commitments, God was not content to sit by and do nothing. What did he do in the Old Testament? Well, he sent prophets, amongst other things. He spent, sent prophets to speak his word to the people. Now, Daniel Hayes said these prophets to Israel, to Judah, spoke primarily three principal truths. Number one, you've sinned. You better repent. Number two, no repentance, then judgment. Number three, after judgment, restoration. And that was basically the message of the prophets to Israel, to Judah. So these prophets that he sent sometimes uh, were used by God and they're powerful pictures that illustrate his message. For Jeremiah, it included the visit down to the potter's house and he observed how the potter shaped and reshaped and he, he presents God as God who's able to work with clay and do amazing things, human clay. So he's described as one who has an appreciation of God's remolding capacity. And he is also described as the weeping prophet as he wept because of the waywardness of his countrymen. His tears were so evident to this very day when a person tends to be weepy-eyed, what do we call that individual? He's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Uh, back to Hosea, though. For Hosea, it's a powerful picture of broken marriage. God's amazing capacity of grace to create a new bond of trust and devotion. So Hosea lives out a parable amongst his countrymen of God's endless, unconditional love for his broken people, Israel. Both God and his prophet, Hosea, know the heartbreak of that kind of broken commitment of trust violated. But God's aggressive, unconditional love keeps surfacing again and again. Chapter 6, 6, where he talks about he desires the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He distinguishes between mere sacrifices and knowing him. Billy K. Smith was an instructor that I enjoyed uh, while I was experiencing uh, the walk toward the D-Men at New Orleans Seminary. And it was Dr. Smith who defined the knowledge of God and I like this better than any I've ever read or heard. The knowledge of God is an experiential, devotional relationship with God. Now, if it's to be a valid, experiential, devotional relationship with God, it must be founded upon truth to be sure. There must be objective truth involved, but then we must experience the truth in life change. 
uh, I thought about it in this light. I think it would be possible, for example, with the problem in Hosea's day of the people getting away from the Torah and there being false priests, false prophets, and so on. Hosea is calling for the people to come back to God. The whole experience of going to the slave market, purchasing back Gomer, is a powerful picture of God coming to us and bringing us back into relationship with him. But I think he's calling for more than just for the priests to get back to the business of the Torah. I think it's possible, and my, my thought is not the last word. God has the last word, and I'm so glad. But I, I, I think it would be possible for a person to go to hell clutching a Bible in one hand in the best systematic theology book he or she could find in the other hand. You could, have, you could have the truth, you could have a mental knowledge of it, know about it, and yet not be saved because you've not experientially come to God. You don't know him in an experience. There's an emphasis in our Southern Baptist Convention right now on who's your one. Well, my one is named Kirby. Kirby's a little older than I am. He's in his late 70s. Smart man, if you see him out to eat, he's probably going to be carrying his hand some New York Times bestseller novel or book, some kind. If you talk to him a little bit, you'll soon discover that he probably knows more about the Bible than I know. He's very knowledgeable, those kind of things, but when I ask Kirby, are you gonna be there in heaven? Don't think so. Be quick to respond, don't think so. See, he knows mentally the right stuff. He's got it down. But he has not responded to the God of the Bible or the God who's described in the systematic theology, he knows all the stuff. He could probably take you back to early church uh, history and deal with some of the church fathers and talk with you about those matters. But he is unsaved. He does not know the Lord, doesn't have a knowledge of God. W.A. Criswell, late Dr. Criswell, used to say uh, to his hearers, Christianity is one generation away from extinction. Always has been. Always will be. And so it's important that we have the knowledge of the Lord, a personal, experiential, devotional relationship with him, and that we pass on the objective truth to the generations that come after us but that we, that we make sure that when we pass that information on, we're passing on as well. He's come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. It's not, it's not just memorizing the truth about him, but knowing him. Now, I haven't the time to go there in detail, but what happens when you don't know God? He says there's no truth in the land. People were defrauding and deceiving one another. Even the prophets and priests uh, were engaged in that to some extent. 
No truth to be found. Sometimes it's difficult to sort it out and really get to truth in the culture in which we live. There's no mercy in the land. Even though they had received great mercy from the hand of God, they were not demonstrating mercy toward their fellow man. Jesus in his memorable sermon on the mount said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. His said is one of the key concepts. Loving kindness, God's loving kindness or his mercy is one of the key ideas in this book of Hosea. Gomer needed his said in order to be restored. So did the nation Israel. Mercy or loving kindness is the primary characteristic of our God. When love and mercy are betrayed, there is a price to be paid. And so it's the absence of it that results in this stinging indictment. Now, there was no knowledge, he says, no truth, no mercy, no knowledge. We've talked about the knowledge of God, but it was absent. And the absence of the knowledge of God, some people say, well, don't you think there's going to be a judgment as a result of our not knowing God, walking with God, honoring him as God? Don't you think there's going to be a judgment? Yeah, I do, but I think we're already experiencing judgment. I think what we are experiencing in a land where there's no truth and no mercy, it seems sometimes, the judgment of God is that he allows us to be given over to that kind of thing, which is nothing but defeating and miserable for us. Israel wanted to be like her pagan neighbors, pursued false gods, and by doing so committed spiritual adultery. And all of these results occur. Sounds like a, sounds like a typical weekend in Chicago. Or if you wanted to reduce it to my town, your town, maybe on a much smaller scale, kind of a typical kind of week, typical day when we get the news in the evening. Is there a comparison between ancient Israel and modern America? Yes, I think so, but modern America, I do not believe, is ancient Israel resurrected. I'm not a... I'm not one of those uh, Herbert W. Armstrong guys who believes that you could place Israel and U.S. side by side and the Europeans who came here and established America are really the sons and daughters of the Abrahams and Isaacs and Jacobs. I think our principles that this nation is built upon correspond with the principles that they followed, Bill of Rights, Constitution, on and on. But when America rejects God, just as when Israel rejected God, there is judgment. Now, I want to close on a note of uh, reality as well. Not only do we receive the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God can be rejected, but Thanks be to God, the knowledge of God can be restored. Our relationship with him can be restored. He went to the slave market to restore a wayward Gomer and received her back unconditional love. 
mercy because she didn't deserve it. God is picturing his mercy for all of us. None of us deserve it. Jesus went to the cross. In fact, Wheeler Robinson calls Hosea 3 the cross in the Old Testament. Jesus going to buy us back into relationship. Lyrics of Graham Kendrick's song, I think, express the wonder of the knowledge of God. All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there's no greater thing. You're my all, you're my best, you're my joy, you're my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. And Hosea presents that picture beautifully. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that you've so loved the world that you gave your one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but instead have everlasting life. We're glad that in experiencing that everlasting life with the Apostle Paul, we can understand at least in part what it means to be in Christ, to know Christ, to know God. Thank you for making yourself knowable, for coming to us and showing us the truth. Bless us, we pray, in our walk with you to the end that we could be a blessing to somebody else. For Jesus' sake, amen.